glad you're here this morning. Happy Father's Day, dads. We are very grateful for you, especially those of you fathers who are leading your families, discipling your kids, loving your wife like Christ loves the church, who are not uh, a model of what we see oftentimes in commercials and Hollywood movies and the buffoonery that we see of some idiot that can't answer any questions and is absent in crucial moments and all those things. So I want to thank the dads in our church uh, that take their roles and responsibilities of father seriously. And so thank you and happy Father's Day. We're glad you're here. And uh, we're going to do a a special thing today, for those of you who are guests with us, we've been going through the book of Acts. We're going to take a little break from that. We invite you to come back for that next week. Our invitation to you today, if you're a guest, is just fill out your card. It's in the worship program. We'd ask you to do that. We've got a gift for you. And because you fill that card out, we make a donation to a ministry that rescues people from human trafficking. So if you'd please do that. But just so you know what's going on, we've been going through the book of Acts as a church. And uh, we're going to finish that this summer. But we're taking a break from it today. And today we're going to do a man message. Now, I understand that a large percentage of the audience today is not male. And so uh, some of you females may be thinking to yourselves, I'm going to play Angry Birds or whatever you're thinking right now. Don't do that. Uh, There will be some uh, information, some universal principles that you'll be able to get from this message as well. But also I hope that you get a picture of what a godly man is supposed to look like from today's message. And it changes your expectations for whether it's a a brother, a father, a boyfriend, a spouse, whoever it is, and what you have for them and that you would help them in this journey too. And then men, uh, hopefully this will challenge your life and change your life and the type of man that you are. Uh, from this day forward. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll open up the scriptures. We're going to be in the book of 1 Kings today. So if you want to get a jump start on that, 1 Kings is where we're going to be. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to gather together, to assemble as believers. And uh, I pray for those who don't know you, that today they become a believer. They place their faith in your son, Jesus Christ, and begin a relationship with you. And uh, Father, we thank you that you are our Heavenly Father that your name is set apart, that you are different, that you are holy, that you're not just any other father. And for those of us who've had uh, bad experiences with dad, uh, that you're the picture of the perfect father and that you give us good gifts and you gave us the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that. And that's why we're here. That's why we gather. And God, thank you for not leaving us on our own and giving us your word and speaking to us, giving us instructions, caring for us, guiding us, providing for us, protecting us and being the father that you are. I pray that this church, that every church in the triangle, that every church that gathers in your name today would bring glory to you um, through your word, through your son, Jesus Christ, by the power of your spirit. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Last words are powerful words. They can be incredibly memorable words. And if you've ever lost someone before, you probably remember the last conversation you had with them. Maybe the last words you shared with them. Maybe the last words that they shared with you. And this week being Father's Day, I was thinking about my own father who died when he was 48 years old. And I remember when he was 47, he had a major heart incident that took place and had to have emergency surgery. And then over the next year, he had several other surgeries. And after his last surgery that he had, he spent a couple weeks in the hospital recovering. And then he came home to my wife and I. My wife and I had just newly gotten married. We had a basement apartment. And he came there and stayed with us and had some of Shanna's cooking, which has dramatically improved uh, since that time period. But he even, he even enjoyed that cooking back then. And so he had that. And we hung out together and had a good time for a couple weeks. And I remember at the end of that two weeks, I was taking him back to where he lived. We're in the car. We're driving. And uh, I regret that our last conversation was actually an argument. Because he started to critique uh, the route that I was taking to get to his house. I snapped back at him and told him how I could handle it and I'll get him to his house. And, you know, I was driving the car. He's not doing it now. I'm doing it now. And so this is like jousting that's taking place and jockeying for position there. And I wish I hadn't done that. It was pride. It was the problem. And they got to his house and dropped him off in his living room. I remember he was in the living room. He went and sat in the chair that he always sat in to watch TV. And he just sat there and he looked forward and said, I can't believe I never thought I'd be here again. I can't believe I'm here again. And then I just looked at him before I walked out the door and said, I love you, Dad. And then I left. I regret that we had the, the fight. I'm glad that my last words to him 
or words of love. But I can remember that conversation like it happened moments before this service. It's very vivid in my mind because last words are memorable. And some of you, maybe last words with your father, maybe with a father figure, maybe with someone else. But if you've lost someone, you can probably remember the last conversation you had with them. The last words you shared with them or the last words they shared with you. In the passage of scripture we're going to look at today, in 1 Kings chapter 2, what we're seeing is a father sharing last words with his son. It's a famous father. His name is David, King David. He's the second king of Israel. He's a very popular character in the Old Testament and the Bible. One historian I read this week said that he had more accomplishments than any royalty that's ever walked the earth, and that would be apart from Jesus Christ. And he's speaking words of wisdom to who's going to be the third king of Israel, his young son, Solomon. They're his last words. They're powerful words. They're memorable words. And do you know what he tells them? Be a man. Look at it with me. First Kings chapter 2. We'll look at the first three verses just to give you the setting of what's happening here. In First Kings chapter 1, what took place uh, would be a Hollywood version of political jockeying. Uh, there were two sons uh, going and vying for the throne. And it's really a picture of the gospel. Because the first son, Adonijah, is a, a son who, from a worldly perspective, has everything going for him. He's handsome. He's the oldest of David's living sons, and so the oldest will inherit the throne, right? That's kind of a worldly standard that we have. Uh, He's got political backing from military leaders like Joab, who's David's chief guy. He's got the political position for all of this, but God's got a different plan. Instead, like in the gospel, he doesn't pick because of qualifications. He picks because of his promises. He picks Solomon, and Solomon, who was born in scandal, His mom is Bathsheba. It's the woman that David had an affair with, who slept with and murdered to try and cover it up, the biggest scandal in his kingdom. And Solomon is given the throne because of a promise from his father, not because of anything about him. It's by grace alone that he's given the kingdom, the same as with you and with me. It's by grace alone because of a promise from our father. And the promise is Jesus Christ who wants to give you life. And right as the throne's about to change hands, it becomes clear that Solomon's going to be the next king, and David's speaking to Solomon. David's about 70 years old here. He reigns in Israel for 40 years. He takes the throne at 30, and so he's about 70 years old, but he's aware that he's dying. And he knows these are his last words. Look at them with me. First Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we'll read together. It says, when the time drew near, this is the narrator of Kings telling us, when the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. And it's really a command to Solomon. And now hear David's words, verse 2. I'm about to go the way of all the earth. He knows he's going to die. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong, show yourself a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements as written in the law of Moses, so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. So here we get a glimpse into a, a, a very intimate relationship between a father and a son. As the father's about to hand off incredible responsibilities of an entire nation to his son. The son Solomon's probably somewhere between 12 years old and 20 years old. Early rabbis tell us he was 12. Some modern historians tell us he was 20. Somewhere in that range, he's either a boy or a very young man, inexperienced. And his 70-year-old father's looking at him. And, and the words he gives him are, show yourself a man. Man up, Solomon. Time to be a man which sounds great, and it'll preach. Trust me, it'll go. And we can talk about being a man. But my question is, what what does David mean when he says, show yourself a man? Because we talk a lot about manhood. There are Christian books written about manhood. They'll tell you to go beat a drum out in the woods and talk about Jesus while you're there. And they'll do all kinds of different stuff. I was telling a guy out under the awning, I said, if the next Christian book said, go fly a kite for Jesus, we'd have a bunch of kite flying ministries. But what is it really all about? 
Because we're confused about this as a society, by the way. That's why you've got all these man words. Man caves, uh, mankinis, unfortunately, is a word. Uh, Man purses are out there. There, There's all kinds of stuff. I've heard people talk about being a man means eating red meat. It means killing stuff. It means blowing stuff up. It means jumping out of something. It means doing all kinds of manly things, because apparently these are man things. In fact, I even uh, had a manhood experience this past year. I went on uh, an expedition to a hunting show. Let that sink in for those of you who know me. I was at a hunting show. Yes, that is true. I was there voluntarily and not just for sermon fodder. I was there because I I wanted to be there. And I noticed it could also be known as a beard convention. Have you noticed how many men have beards nowadays? And I've got friends with beards. I've warned a couple of them. I was going to talk about this. I can't stand having a beard. Now, I can grow facial hair. I tried to do it for two days this year. My kids thought I had bugs on my face because they had never seen anything like it before. I felt lazy. Like, I didn't like, I just felt, I didn't feel right. So I shave. Sometimes I'll shave twice a day. So I'm at this hunting thing. I've got a cleanly shaven face. I'm there. I'm walking around. I'm looking at bow and arrows and guns and heads of things that I'd never seen before and all kinds of stuff. And I'm noticing all these guys walking by with beards. Now, you can be, you don't have to be a hunter to have a beard, by the way. Hipsters have them too. So it's all over the map. But this guy walks by with a beard. It's about, it's a respectable one. You know, it's coming, it's actually touching his shirt as he's walking by me. And I notice his shirt. His shirt says they have a name for people without beards. Women. And I was looking at it and I'm thinking, so my gender is in question now because I don't have facial hair. I have a feeling that David didn't mean when he said to Solomon, show yourself a man, go grow a beard. And he he wasn't talking to him about how to dress. And he wasn't talking to him about jumping off of something or killing something or doing any of those things that sometimes even Christian books will say that is manhood. What David meant to Solomon here when he said, show himself a man, is be the man that God's called you. You're a man because you were born with male gender. And now, unfortunately, I have to say that in our society, but that's all it takes to be a man, is you're born. God chose that. But how do you show yourself the kind of man that David's talking about in this passage is a godly man. A godly man is a man who points people to his king, Jesus Christ. And so we could talk about manhood. There's lots of ways I could approach this message. There are a lot of pictures of manhood in the Bible. There are good examples. There are bad examples. There's Moses and Joshua's and Jacob's, and they all have their flaws. We, good examples, and you've got the, you know, Judas and Jonah and different bad examples in the Bible, and we could pick those and say, don't do this, or we could say, do this, and that's a manhood. But we'd be jumping into a text and grabbing a characteristic and pulling it out. The better thing for us to do would be to back up and say, what does the Bible say as a whole? What are the pictures of manhood we have? And we really have two. The first one is the first man, Adam, whose name actually means man, or mankind is a general noun, mankind, and he was a picture of what many of us follow as manhood. He was given rule and dominion over the earth. He had leadership responsibilities. He did his job well. He named the animals. He was given a wife, so he's a husband, and he's only given one command, and he blows it in his relationship with God. See, Eve's the one who sinned, right? She's the one who took the fruit. If you read the Genesis account in Genesis chapter 3, you'll see that Adam was standing right there because he takes the fruit from her. Instead of stepping in and leading in his family and taking responsibility for the command that he was given, he's passive. He rejects his responsibility, and he allows his wife to lead him into sin. And notice who God's looking for when God comes looking for someone in the garden. It wasn't Eve, it's Adam. Look at the New Testament, who gets held accountable? It's Adam, because Adam was responsible, and he failed to lead. And what happened through Adam because of his passivity, because he rejected his responsibility, is that sin entered the world, and through sin, death. And because of that death, separation from God, our king, 
And as a result of that, you continue to read the story, which would be humorous if it wasn't so tragic. When God comes to call him to account, what does he say? He blames God. The woman you gave me, shrugging his responsibility again. And he's hiding. He's covered his body. He realizes he's naked. And what happens? Guilt has entered the world. Shame has entered the world. Death and sin have entered the world. Contrast that with the other picture of manhood we're given in the New Testament, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. The Bible calls him the second Adam in the book of Romans and 1 Corinthians. We see that. And what is he? He's the exact opposite. He comes to earth on his own initiative takes responsibility for something he didn't cause, sin, your sin, my sin, sin that entered the world through Adam. He takes responsibility for the many, and he dies a sacrificial death on the cross that then brings life, opposite of death. He brings freedom, opposite of shame. He brings forgiveness, the opposite of guilt. So those are our pictures of manhood in the Bible. Manhood ultimately comes down to which one do you follow, first Adam or second Adam? The Apostle Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. He says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. It wasn't just because Adam sinned and we're all sinners as a result of that, but we've all done it too. We all know what it's like to live like the first Adam. Then Romans chapter 5 continues to go on. You can read the verses in between verse 12 and verse 18 and 19. But today, verses 18 and 19 says, Consequently, just as the result of one trespass, that's Adam's, was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness, that's the cross of Jesus Christ, was justification that brings life for all men. Verse 19, For just as through the disobedience of the one man, first Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many who place their faith in Jesus Christ will be made righteous. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 45, the same author that wrote Romans says this, So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that's Jesus Christ, a life-giving spirit. Which Adam does your life point to? Because what David's saying to Solomon in this passage is ultimately that your life, Solomon, needs to point people to Christ. Because what David commands Solomon to do in this passage, Solomon does not do, he cannot do. In fact, no king is able to do it. First Kings, you read First Kings, you read Second Kings, you read the Chronicles, you read the stories of the kings, they all fail. The definition of a good king or a bad king comes down to when they fail, do they turn to God or not? See, everything that happens in the Old Testament ultimately points us to our king, Jesus Christ. The prophets proclaim him. These kings demonstrate the need for him. And that's why the New Testament starts with this verse, first verse in the New Testament, Matthew 1, verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Wait, have you heard the Christmas story? Isn't Jesus the son of a man named Joseph? Why does the New Testament start the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David? Because this is the promised king that we're being pointed to in 1 Kings chapter 2 that Solomon's not able to be. It's Jesus Christ. And so today, my hope for you in this message, men, is not that I give you a definition of manhood and you can figure out, should I carry a man purse? Shouldn't I carry a man purse? Should I have facial hair? Shouldn't I have facial hair? It's not that. I've got much bigger goals for you than that. Hopefully, I'm going to paint for you a picture of manhood that God desires so you can lay your life down next to that picture and then ask yourself the question, where don't I look like that picture and make changes or decide to follow the first Adam, which unfortunately is what many of us are doing. The first thing that we see that David points his son to here is courageous obedience. And that's the first characteristic we have to have. It's courageous obedience. You go back to our passage in 1 Kings chapter 2, and you see what happens here. And I'm trying to imagine what it was like to be Solomon. 
maybe a 12-year-old boy, maybe a 20-year-old young man, you look into the face of your father who's 70 years old, and in that 70 years has some incredible experience. Like I said, he's got incredible accomplishments. If you just think about what David accomplished as the king, the second king of Israel, when he took over Israel, Israel was 6,000 square miles. It's now 60,000 square miles. Every enemy has been defeated. His military is respected around the world. Not only that, he's brought trade through there. He's not only a, a good politician and uniting this nation under one flag, which you'd read the Old Testament and see how often was Israel actually united, and it's rare, and David did it. Great political acumen, but not only that, not only was he a military strategist, not only did he kill a lion and kill a bear and kill a giant and lead the army, and you know, they got the song, Saul killed his thousands, that was the first king, David his tens of thousands, great warrior, great political leader, he's a great businessman too. Oftentimes we don't give him credit for this, he had brought some trade routes through Israel, Israel was incredibly wealthy at this time, so wealthy he's able to assemble all the materials Solomon will need to build the temple for God. He's got the drawings from God. God speaks directly to him. In fact, the best thing about David goes beyond all those things. Is he's called a man after God's own heart. Not because he was perfect. He was very flawed. He was absent at times as a parent when he should have been there. He's got a situation with Bathsheba that we talk about. He's got all kinds of flaws, but he turns to God in those flaws. And he led the nation to God. When's the last time you saw a leader that did something like that in any nation? He's written over 70 psalms in the book of Psalms. You see him pointing people to God. And he did it through his leadership and the way he directed the nation. He did it in the way he lived his own life. And here's a man who was the only person in that nation who knew what it was like to be the king. He's the only one that knew what it was like to carry that burden. He's the only one that knew what it was like to have the whole nation watching him and questioning everything he did to see whether or not it was in the best interest of Israel or whether he's looking out for his own best interest. And he knows his son's about to take on that weight. He's about to take on that responsibility. And he looks at him and he's aware these are his last words. Look at verse 2. In verse 2, he says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. The New Living Translation says, I'm going to go where everyone on this earth will someday go. I'm about to die. He's saying, I know that I'm going in the ground. But then he tells his son, be strong. Show yourself a man. That's the courage we're talking about here. When he says be strong, he's not telling Solomon, go do some curls or some push-ups. He's telling Solomon, you've got to have a certain kind of strength. The kind of strength that he's talking about here is a courageous strength. In fact, behind this word is the idea of courage. It's growing in confidence is what the word means. It's an echo of what God said to Joshua before there were kings in Israel when Joshua was about to lead Israel. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 7, he says, Be strong and very courageous. Now, I don't just mean have courage. That's something a lot of Christian books will tell men too. Just have this characteristic of courage. Do something courageous, you know, water ski or do something courageous there's a lot of courage out there and some of it's just foolishness drug addicts are courageous they'll risk everything to get their next fix bank robbers are courageous they might strategize and come up with a plan and it seems like a well planned out deal and they'll go in to take something that's not theirs and they're stupid but they're courageous they're pointed in the wrong direction they're not pointed towards the king of kings So the courage we're talking about here is a courageous obedience. Both words go together. They have to go together because you see the context. Context defines words. What's just before, what's just after in Joshua chapter 1 verse 7 and 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 2 and 3. Joshua chapter 1, we see what happens. Verse 7 says, be courageous, very courageous. How do you do that? Be very careful to obey the word obedience. All the law my servant Moses gave you, that's the Ten Commandments plus everything else is in the first five books of the Bible. And do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. 
What we have in First Kings is almost a parallel of that exact statement. Verse 3, it says to be strong and courageous. Show yourself a man and observe what the Lord your God requires. All his ways, keep his commandments. He just says the same thing over and over again. What he's saying is obey. It's courageous obedience. Because the kind of obedience we're talking about here isn't just be a good guy. Go to the soccer games. Be there to listen, cry on your shoulder and give directions. So it's going to require faith. It's a radical obedience. You look at it in the life of Joshua. What happens with Joshua? He tells him he's going to go and he's going to take over the land of Canaan. And as he goes in there, there are different battles that are going to be fought. And he says, I don't want, I'm not looking for bravado or machismo. What I'm looking for from you is obedience. So when you go to Jericho, march around the wall one time for six days. On the seventh day, I want you to march around seven times. I'll give you exact instructions of what I want you to do. And then I'll give you the city. He doesn't say, go in there and show them what an amazing warrior you are. Show them your courage. Show them how strong the army of Israel is. He says, I want you to obey. Sometimes it won't make sense. Just like for some of us, it doesn't make sense. Why didn't Joshua say back to God when he, said, he gave him that command? Well, that doesn't make, they could mock us. They're going to drop something on us from the wall. We can't do that. That's not gonna, we're going to shout and the walls are going to come down? Yeah, right. I've got a plan. We'll show you, God, how to do this, which is what many of us would do. Because he wanted radical obedience. Radical obedience for you and I looks different than marching around walls. We're not in charge of the army of Israel. We're not in charge of That's not our, the thing. But you know what? We get commands of things. They're going to require radical obedience. How about this? Turn the other cheek. You have the courage to do that? That requires courage. We've been going through the book of Acts talking about being a witness for Christ. I had somebody come up to me in the lobby, a man in our church last week, and tell me how he had a Muslim man come into his office and how he told him about Jesus Christ. That requires courage and it's obedience. That's courageous obedience. I was reading a book and I recommend to you, it's on a resource guide we'll give you after the service today, men, called A Guide to Biblical Manhood. In it, one of the applications, it talks about what if you have to reconcile a relationship in your family? You know, your family knows. There's a relationship that's been broken. Why don't you be the one to have the courage to take the initiative to reconcile the relationship, even if you didn't cause the problem? It's courageous obedience. And there'll be things that don't make sense. You want to be exalted? Stop exalting yourself. Humble yourself. That's what the Bible says. You want to be great? Stop lording your power at your office over people and your home over people and serve. That's what the Bible says. It's courageous obedience. And that's what was required of Solomon. That's why David says to him, in verse 3, this is what defines these words, the context, what's around it, what's before it, what comes after it. He says, so be strong, that's courage. Show yourself a man. What does it look like to be a man? Observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways, follow his direction, follow his paths, different translations. Keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements as written in the law of Moses so that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you go. Do what God says, obey. And David says this because he knows it from experience. It's not just, oh, I remember that stuff that God said to Joshua. That'd be, those would be good words to give my son as I die. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to represent the first Adam. He knows what it's like to represent the second Adam. He knows what it's like to point people to God. He knows what it's like to do his own thing. He knows what it's like to take on responsibility and to shrug responsibility. Think of any story of David that you'd want to emulate. Kills a lion, kills a bear. He comes on the scene because he kills a giant. Have you read that story, 1 Samuel chapter 17? There's some great Bible trash talk in that story, if you haven't read it. And what's happening is that the barbarian Goliath, who's told it, we're told he's a nine-foot-tall man, is mocking the armies of Israel and mocking their God. And what happens is David comes on the scene and realizes that David wasn't the first one there. There are a bunch of other people that were being first Adams, shrugging their responsibility and being passive, 
And David comes on the scene and says, we got to do something about this. He's just a shepherd boy, the least of his brothers. He says, all right, I'll do something. He can't talk trash about our God. And he grabs some stones. It's a great story. Puts them in his pouch, five stones. Don't know why. He's got them with the first one. But he grabs five stones, puts them in there, grabs a slingshot. And he comes at this guy. Listen to this trash talk. This is great. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword and with a spear and a javelin with your tools, with your abilities, with your experience. But I come against you with a slingshot. That's not what he says, is it? That's right. I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will hand you over to me. <laughs> and here's some trash talk. I'll strike you down and I'll cut off your head. Today, I'll give the carcasses of not just you. This is what I'm going to do to your army. The carcasses of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And the whole world will know that I'm good with a slingshot. And the whole world will know. And sometimes that's how we tell David's story, by the way. The whole world will know that I've got courageous obedience. See, David, when he's doing the stuff that we look at and think, that's what I want to be like. He's not drawing attention to himself. He's obeying the Lord. So the whole world will know there is a God in Israel. And that's the king I serve. And that's the king I fight for. And I'm willing to take responsibility for our nation. I'm behalf of representing that king. And then you've got the contrast. It's hard to talk about David without talking about his failure with Bathsheba that we read about in 2 Samuel. So you read first in 2 Samuel if you want to know David's life. 2 Samuel, chapter 11, what ends up happening is that a lot of times we'll talk about the story of David and Bathsheba. What happens is he sees a woman who's not his wife. He sleeps with her. Uh, they get pregnant. He tries to cover it up by killing her husband. It's a horrible story. First baby dies. Solomon's actually the second child. And... Oftentimes you'll hear messages where we speculate about what happened. David was starting to let sin creep into his life, and so that's what happened. Or he had a weakness for women, and we look at the concubines and all that stuff, and we'll talk about that. And there's some principles that we draw on that, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible tells us what the problem was. The problem for David, it's put in the setting. Sometimes we read right past the setting of a story. Oftentimes you've got to ask yourself, why did the author of the Bible put those details and not other details? There are a lot, it was a nice day. There's all kinds of things he could have said, but he said this. Why? Look at what he says, 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war. Who's the king? It's David. David sent. It didn't say when kings send men off to war. David sent Joab, and Joab's the leader of his army, out with the king's men, so he sends all of his men, and the whole Israelite army. They, not David, they had success. They destroyed, as they're out being courageous for their king, they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David, contrast, but David remained in Jerusalem. He wasn't supposed to be in Jerusalem is the point the author's making here. It says, one evening, David got up from his bed, walked around on the roof. He should have never been on this roof. He should have been fighting for his king. Instead, he rejected his responsibilities like the first Adam and sought his own pleasure. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and the story goes on. And it's a tragedy. And so I ask you men, which one are you more like? David who fights Goliath or David who sleeps with Bathsheba? Which one are you more like? First Adam, David who sleeps with Bathsheba. Or second Adam, David who fights Goliath. David who's fighting for his king or David who's seeking his own pleasure? Which one are you like? The one that's willing to step out in courageous obedience? Or the one who rejects his responsibilities and wants to do his own thing? You see, the picture of obedience 
and the picture of disobedience, Adam and Jesus Christ. What does Adam want in the garden? Well, he wants to be like God. That's the temptation from Satan to Eve. I'm going to call my own shots. I'm going to do one thing. He blows it. And what do we get? The opposite of courage. We get shame. We get guilt. We get passivity. He rejects responsibility. And what do we see with Jesus Christ? Talk about courageous obedience. He courageously leaves heaven, comes to earth, takes on a responsibility that he didn't cause. He lives a perfect life. He obeys everything God tells him to do. He says, I only do what the Father tells me to do. No one takes his life from him. He lays it down. He takes the initiative, lays his life down on the cross. And then what does the scripture tell us? Him being in very nature God, Philippians chapter 2. Didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He let go of it and he became a servant. So that's crazy because Adam in the garden was trying to be like God and God himself, Jesus Christ, crazy enough, decides to release his godness to be a servant. And then Philippians chapter 2 tells us he became obedient, even obedient to the point of death on the cross. That's courageous obedience. Which one are you like? Because that's ultimately where manhood comes down to. And when you fail, which one do you point to? I got it. I'll figure it out. Or you fall in repentance on your knees at Jesus Christ. You embrace your responsibilities, or are you letting somebody else take care of the responsibilities? Many of us, we don't even know the responsibilities. It takes more to be a man than just courageous obedience and desire to be courageous. It takes a knowledge, a biblical knowledge. It takes a God kind of knowledge. And Solomon had that, and that's what verse 3 tells us. In fact, if you continue to read on in this passage, you see in verses 5 through 9, not only does he have the commands of Moses and he's got the books of the law, in 1 Kings it actually tells us some specific commands for kings. One of them is, don't have a bunch of wives. Another one is, don't have too much wealth. Don't store for yourself a bunch of horses. Solomon's given in verses 5 through 9 in this passage things that are very specific not only to kings in general, not only to men in general, but to his life. He has the knowledge of what to do. The problem for many of us is we don't even know what our responsibilities are. So we try to be good dads. We try to be moral. We go to church. We try not to cuss too much. We don't spit in public or whatever stuff we come up with. But did you know the Bible actually gives us specific things that are directed towards men that we are going to be held responsible for? And the reality is that many of us don't realize this. We don't know it. I was reading a blog this week by a guy named Al Moeller. He's the president of a seminary up in Kentucky. And he was critiquing an article on manhood that was in the Boston Globe. In the Boston Globe article, the author said this, how to act like a man is a humdinger of an issue. If I can read the word humdinger on a sermon, I just think it's a good thing. So I did that. Um, especially if you are a man, he goes on to say. He said, the late Stephen L. Nock, who's a sociologist, professor of sociology at the University of Virginia, was said in an email to the author of the Boston Globe article last year that it doesn't take much for women to prove that they're real women in the widely accepted social senses. But men are in a more slippery situation, he says. This isn't a biblical article. It's the Boston Globe. Especially with the role of father, protector, provider, not considered as necessary or desirable as it once was. Just stating a truth. Masculinity must be continuously earned and displayed. It is never won, Knock wrote. Without a traditional role to, to embrace, being a man requires... Constantly defining yourself in opposition to all things female. And then he says, no wonder things like man purses attract attention. You're not a man if you don't do the opposite of feminine things, like grow a beard, jump off of something, whatever the things are we define. But the reality is that God's given us the definition of what we are to be, and as fathers and protectors and providers and husbands, and the scriptures give us commands specifically for that, that you're going to be held responsible for, men. It says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, husbands. Now, let me say this. If you're not married, 
doesn't mean you're not a man. But if you are married, you have a unique responsibility. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That means this, man, that in every situation all the time, you're looking out for her best interest. You're serving her. You're willing to lay your life down for her. You're protecting her. You're providing for her. In fact, you're providing more than she would ever imagine you'd be able to provide for her or be willing to provide because that's what Jesus Christ has done for you. Men, you're responsible for that. Later in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, it says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. That doesn't mean don't pick on them. And notice the text doesn't say parents. I'm talking to dads here, men. It doesn't say youth pastor. It doesn't say pastor. It doesn't say church. It doesn't say wife. It says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. How do you not exasperate your children? It says, Instead, Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. The way that you don't exasperate them, frustrate them, is you tell them how life works and you train them and point them to God. And you, men, will be held accountable for this. Fathers, you don't get to delegate this. Oh, but my wife's more spiritual than me. Tough. Start reading the Bible. Get on your knees. you got catching up to do because when you stand before God, it's going to be like God in the garden when he comes and he doesn't say, where's that lady who took the fruit? Say, who discipled your kids? It's your responsibility. You don't get to delegate it. It's on you. And you will be held accountable. Did you know that was your responsibility? You do today. I'll tell you something I share with our, our church. When we do, uh, we, we dedicate babies and when we dedicate children, we really call it a family dedication because we want to equip families to be able to disciple their kids. And a statistic was given to me by the, the man who leads our Bridge Kids ministry, Brad Altice, our Bridge Kids director. I share with them every, when I get, get up and speak in front of them is that did you know that in a month you spend more time with your kids in the car than we as your church will spend with your kids in an entire year. And fathers, you're responsible for everything that happens in the car. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says that. When you stand up, when you sit down, when you ride in the minivan. That's what it's saying. Wherever you go, whatever's happening, whatever activity, you direct them to the Lord. You're responsible for that. You say, well, I don't have kids and I'm not married. The Bible's got specific commands for you too, men. Older men, says in Titus chapter 2, verse 2, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and in sound and faith. So you know your Bibles. You, you live out your faith, courageous obedience, in love, and so you do it all in love, and endurance. It's also interesting how many times you read a man command in the Bible, and it points out to love. Because we need to be told this stuff, and we're going to be held responsible to do it. Older men, you know what you're being told here? Let me summarize. I'll put it all together. Be the kind of man that a younger guy is going to look at it and go, I want to be like that. That's how I want to end. That's the legacy I want to leave. That's the kind of knowledge I want to have. Is that you, older men? Younger men, it says this. I think it's very interesting. Titus chapter 2, verse 6. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled, which is a fruit of the Spirit that you find in Genesis or uh, Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, there's uh, several fruits of the Spirit, joy and peace and kindness and and I find it interesting that Paul tells Titus to tell the young men in his church, teach them to be self-controlled. It doesn't say teach them to be joyous, teach them to be kind. It says teach them to be self-controlled. So that means, young men, you've got to be able to say no. No to overindulgence. No to procrastination. No to passivity. No to pornography. No to... That should characterize your life, and you will be held accountable in a different way than just everyone else will be for those decisions. It's a man command. And there are more. This is just a handful of them because I want you to know they're in the Bible. There are hundreds of commands that apply to everyone, no matter what your gender is. There are a handful of commands that apply just to women. There are a handful of commands that apply just to men. And these are some of them. 
And you have to know them because you're responsible for them. It's not just like, yeah, I'm willing. I want to do all for Christ. You know, what does it say? What are you supposed to do? And do you know what else? Not only that, God's got a specific plan for your life. Just like he did for Jesus. Just like he did for Adam. Adam blew it. We saw that in Romans chapter 5. What about Jesus? Will you be able to come to the end of your life and say like Jesus does when he prays to the Father in John chapter 17? John chapter 17, can you imagine if you could pray this on your deathbed? I've brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. In other words, I know what you want me to do, and I did it. And God's got a unique, a specific plan, not just that you're a great husband, not just that you're self-controlled, not those things that apply to every man, but he's got a plan for your life. He had a plan for David's life. David fulfilled the plan. In fact, we've been going through the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 13, Luke tells us, for when David had served God's purpose, so David, even though he was flawed, and even though he blew it, he fulfilled the plan that God had for him. Chuck Swindoll in his book on David does a good exercise. I recommend the book to all the men here today. But what if you took David's name out of the passage and put your own name there? For when Scott had served God's, could you say that? For when Tom, for when Steve, for when Mike, for when... We'll be able to say that about your life. It's not enough just to have courageous obedience and desiring to do these things. It's not enough to just know the right things to do. But you've got to have a heartfelt devotion towards your king. That's what it comes down to. You've got to know the information because you've got to know what you're being obedient to. But you've got to have a devotion to your king because it comes down to ultimately a heart issue. We see that that was the problem for Solomon and why he failed in this passage. He's clearly told to walk in the way of the Lord, follow his path, his leading, his direction. He's given specific instructions. First king gives commands to kings in general. He's told here, follow the book of Moses. That's the first five books of the Bible, the Ten Commandments. Do you know what we're told in First Kings chapter 11 about Solomon? He blows it. He starts well. He's given opportunity. You can have anything you want. And he asks for wisdom, and God's pleased with that. So he gives him wealth. He gives him other things as well. And so God blesses Solomon's life, and the kingdom starts off. He's doing a good job, but it's not how it ends. When he gets to the end, you're not able to say, Solomon fulfilled God's purpose. Instead, it says this, 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4. As Solomon grew old, his wives, yes, that's plural, but it wasn't okay. That's his first problem. He wasn't supposed to take a bunch of wives. He did. And they turned his heart after other gods. So he didn't lead. He let them lead him. And they led him into sin. Sounds like first Adam to me. They led him into sin. And what is it after other gods? What did, first Kings chapter 2, it was so clear. You remember these words from your dad, right, Solomon? Walk in his ways. Do everything that Moses commanded. Ten commandments. First one, don't have any other gods. Second one, don't have idols. The first two, Solomon, come on. You couldn't get the first two? Those aren't the problems. That's a symptom of the problem. The wives, not the problem. It's a symptom of the problem. And the problem, we're told next. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord. See, obedience is a heart issue. Interesting commentary at the end of the verse, as the heart of David, his father, had been. Now, David had made some similar mistakes. But David responded differently. As he turned, ultimately, to Christ. As he turned to God for forgiveness. That only comes through Christ. Apparently Solomon did not. He had a heart issue. This reminds me of one of my favorite man stories. It's about a guy named Robert the Bruce. I'm not familiar with history or not, but he was a nobleman in Scotland in the 1300s. He died when he was 54 years old in 1330. He was a warrior. He was a king. 
And on his deathbed, I was reading the story. The first time I read the story, I thought it was an interesting request. He made a request that his heart be removed from his chest. When I first saw that, I thought, you kind of need that. Like, you're going to keep going here, man. Uh, But they honored the request. After he died, they removed his heart from his chest. They embalmed it. His request was, on his deathbed, one of his last words, was that heart be given to a noble knight and carried into a crusade. One of his best friends was sitting at his bedside at his death. His name was James Douglas. He was a knight. And he said, I'll take it. And what happened was they took his heart, they embalmed it, they put it in a small container, and James Douglas carried it. And every battle he went into after that, he carried that heart, pressed right up against his chest. That was the heart of his king, right up against his own chest. In 1330, in the spring, he was in a battle in Spain and Granada. And as the people were there, it was becoming clear that he was being surrounded, that he was going to lose, that he was going to die. In fact, death was imminent for him. The historians tell us that what James Douglas did at that moment is that he grabbed the necklace off of his chest, took it off, threw it into the battle, and as he threw it into the battle, he yelled, forever follow the heart of your king. The problem was, that's not what Solomon was doing. And that's not what Adam did either. But it is what Jesus Christ did. I only do what the Father tells me to do. What does Jesus do when he's tempted? He goes to the scriptures. That's the heart of his king. He knows the words from his king, his father. What does he do? He's obedient. He becomes obedient to death. He only does what the father tells him to do. What happens when he knows he's going to die a gruesome death? Luke chapter 9, as he sets his face resolutely towards Jerusalem. He focuses more on the obedience that God desires for him. His courageous obedience. He knows his responsibilities. He's going to fulfill his responsibilities. What about you? See, ultimately, the question of manhood comes down to this. Who do you follow? We talk a lot about leadership, leading in your home, leading in your church, leading in your family, leading at work, and you lead in all these different areas. But who are you following? Because that's ultimately what will determine who your life is pointing people towards. You can't live like the first Adam and claim to follow the second Jesus Christ. And so the real challenge for you is who do you follow, men? And are you up for the challenge? Let me say it to you like a 70-year-old man says his last words on his deathbed to his son. Show yourself a man. Let's pray. Father, I come before you with our men, every man that will hear these words, and I pray that you would give them a courageous obedience. I pray that you would embolden them to be the men that you called them to be and give them a hunger for your word. That today would only be a sampling of what they long for. And that they want to devour your truth and know your truth and follow your son, Jesus Christ. And when they fail, and we all will, that they would turn to your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for the women that will hear these words today. I pray that you might change who someone would marry. I pray you might change expectations for what people expect from their husbands, from their fathers, from their brothers, from their boyfriends, from their spouses. And I pray you'd empower women to help these men be the kind of men that you desire for them to be. And Father, I pray for a power from your spirit, for myself, for each one of us as men, to disciple our children, to love our wives, to be self-controlled, to be the kind of men that other men would look to and would be pointed to, ultimately, our king, because we fight for our king. Give us the power, give us the courage, give us the, the empowerment of your spirit, the transformation of your word, and help us to represent you will here on this earth. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.